Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Today, we look at the world of mergers and acquisitions in the promotional products industry. We'll look at questions about when is the right time to sell your business, how does one acquire another company, and what key factors drive business valuation. Our industry has seen a huge number of acquisitions and mergers in recent years, so this is a topic that is particularly relevant to industry professionals. Understanding the mechanics is what we will look at in this episode. Our guest today is Jamie Watson. Jamie is a partner at Certified Marketing Consultants, a leading M&A firm focused on the promotional products industry. Jamie has been involved in various aspects of finance and accounting for over 15 years. She qualified as a CPA in the state of Indiana, where she worked in auditing and consulting for a regional accounting firm. In 2006, Jamie entered the promotional products industry when she joined Certified Marketing Consultants. Jamie has been involved in the consulting of both supplier and distributor companies in the industry for 10 years. Jamie has earned the MAS designation from PPAI and has a strong interest in working to further the prosperity of the industry through education and volunteerism. And with that, let's get started with my conversation with Jamie. I hope you enjoy. So, Jamie, can you tell me how you got your start in the mergers and acquisition business focused on the promotional products vertical? Sure. Um, I started, so I started out of college and auditing, which kind of helped me gain an understanding of the financial side of small business. Um, Small business has always interested me, but I've also always been really interested in the transactional side of things. So uh, when the certified marketing job came up, it just made too much sense not to jump on it. And um, it was in my hometown. So that's kind of how it led me into the industry. And that was about 10 years ago. And um, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So you didn't start off as a salesperson for a supplier or for a distributor or, or even a CFO type role in the industry. You came directly from college into this M&A role. Yeah. Well, I came from, yeah, from auditing where I, I got to understand a number of different types of businesses and then, yes, came into this industry. So I did not start in this industry I, and it was a learning curve I had to spend. I'm still learning, actually. We all right. are probably, but 10 years, the last 10 years kind of learning about, now I've known the industry for quite a while um, just because my family was involved in the industry for a long time. But okay. um so I kind of understood it more than maybe the average person, but there was still a lot to learn. I see. So did your parents have a distributorship or a supplier company when you were growing up? My father worked for um, the old Bemrose USA company, and uh, they sold to Norwood, I believe. Oh, I see. So they were like a supplier to a supplier. Um, well, they sold the Bemrose USA line over to Norwood. Got it. Back in the day. And then, yeah, so that was... so. Right, right. So growing up at the kitchen table, you had your parents talking about uh, the ins and outs of business. And here you are in high school, just, uh, you know, probably thinking it's super boring and you just want to move on. So actually what I remember most is when my dad would come home from trade shows with all of the cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I think that still happens. So 
So before we turn our attention into some of the more tactical side of things, I'm, I'm curious to uh, understand what the most surprising thing was for you when you moved from auditing into the promotional products business. Like, is there something particularly strange or unusual about promotional products businesses compared to the small businesses that you were covering uh, before you started at Certified? Um, the industry in general, I was surprised and I may be coming from auditing, you know, maybe that's a more cynical background, but um, I was really surprised at the enthusiasm in the industry. How many people said they absolutely love what they do? That's just not really that common. Um, so that, I mean, honestly, that was the first thing that struck me as, wow, everybody's really happy in this industry. They really like what they do. Um, right, right. And you found that, uh, in other industries that you were working in, it was, there, there wasn't the same level of enthusiasm or it just was different. Um, not necessarily. I mean, I, I just didn't see it. Maybe that was there and I didn't see it cause I wasn't as heavily involved with those industries. Right. Um, I just, and I was, and I was also in auditing. So, and then that could have been part of the, um, you know, what I was doing for those businesses. I had a certain attitude with it, but, um, right. I, now I just going to the trade shows and talking to people. And when I was new, everybody was really welcoming and they said, you know, you're going to love this industry and these are all the great things about it. So that's just, it was just not, it's not something that I was expecting. Yeah, that's great. Well, we sell pretty cool products, so I think that a lot of people like what it is they do. Um, so I want—I'm curious if you can tell me how you help companies, whether they're distributors or suppliers, sell their businesses. Sure. Um, probably easiest to kind of start from the beginning. Um, our sell side process always starts with evaluation. Okay the basic understanding of what your business is worth and what's driving that value, um, whether you're planning on selling it or not, is something that everybody should have. It's a lot of times your company, everybody knows what their house is worth and everybody knows what their investments are worth. But a lot of the times your company can be worth even more than those things and people don't have any idea what it, what that value is. So that's where we always start. Um, and then from there, um, we move forward. And, and part of that process too, is when we come to that understanding with that individual company owner, then they can make the decision to either sell the company or sometimes they say, you know, I really want X number of dollars out of it. So this is how I'm going to grow it. And this is how I'm going to eventually end at that point. Um, so sometimes those conversations end that way. Um, and then from there we write marketing materials and we contact buyers on behalf of our client. And um, we do that with the relationships that we have in the industry. But the thing that we bring is uh, not only those relationships, but the confidential process. I mean, if you're trying to sell your own company, the minute you start a conversation with somebody, it's already not confidential. Right. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that we bring to the table for them. Um, so, and then from there, I mean, the process is really cradle to grave. So we, we work with buyers, we field questions, we set up conference calls, visits, and all of that. And then we negotiate on behalf of our client and bring that element of credibility um, as a third party that specializes in this industry to the transaction that it, it helps to bridge some gaps sometimes. And from there, we just, um, we field, like I said, field offers, negotiate, and then we coordinate closing. And, and that's, that's pretty much the whole process. 
Right, right. Okay. So before we move into the buy side, uh, the one thing that really popped out at me is that it really starts with the valuation. And the valuation is really uh, the be all and end all at the very beginning because it determines what the business owner should expect for his or her business. Um, can you walk me through what the valuation process looks like? If, I don't know if there's like a five-step process, but just to uncover what's involved. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about what businesses can do to try to maximize that valuation. Sure. Um, I'll kind of start with, you know, the communication we have with the, with our clients is we, it always starts with we have a, a proprietary valuation questionnaire and then we look at most recent financials, three years usually, plus any interim financials, anything you have that's a partial year, and then we compare that with the previous year. So so we kind of have a financial base there, and then we have the questionnaire that fills in the gaps because the numbers don't always tell the whole story. Right. Um, and we use that to determine what the best valuation method is going to be for that specific client. And we have a number of different gut checks that we go through. Um, and there's uh, always an element of marketability. So the one thing that we do that I don't know, um, I've never worked in any other firm, so I don't know, but w since we know this industry so well, we can take a step back and say, okay, this is what the numbers say. Now, how realistic is it that a buyer is going to come along and pay this? You know, it's, what does it look like in the market right now? Um, how desirable is this type of company? That sort of thing. So th that's really the um, the gut check that we go through at the very end of the valuation process. Right. And then to dive into the more specific parts of looking at the financials, um, I'm wondering if you can share some of those specific numbers that you're looking at. So specifically, uh, in the last three years, you're presumably looking at sales, you're looking at gross margin. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'm also interested in some of the of the intangible things like kinds of customers, um, types of programs that you have. Are you transaction oriented? Or are you program oriented? Are your salespeople um, 1099s on commission? Or are they employees? Like Things like that. Are you able to get into some more detail about that side of the valuation? Sure. So we look at all of that. We look at, and definitely um, the compensation structure for salespeople on the distributor side is a huge piece of it. Um, just an example. I mean, if if we had somebody that was compensating at a very high level, that would present, not only does it decrease the um, EBITDA or the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but um, not only does it decrease that number, but it makes it diff more difficult to sell because once the buyer purchases that company, they're obviously going to want to bump that down into their pay structure. And if it's a very high pay structure, you might end up losing some salespeople over it. So it makes that transition difficult. So we definitely look at those kind of things. We look at, um, I would say that compensation structure is the biggest one. Um, we look at customers, sales by customer to see if there's a, a concentration issue there. Um, anything over uh, 10% is technically a concentration, and that doesn't speak to. It's not saying that it's a it's a huge problem, but and then we do look at programs and multi-year contracts and that sort of thing. But you know, honestly, some of those factors, some buyers really buyers really don't like buyers really don't like them, so they don't necessarily always change the value. They're more just notables, um, and then they'll change the type of buyer that wants to buy that company. 
But I mean, there's definitely um, a wide range of buyers in this industry. Some of them love the 1099 and some of them love the employee you know, model. Some of them love programs and some of them don't want anything to do with it. So there's, it's a wide spectrum. There's kind of something for everybody. Right. I, I think that's a good point because, um, and, and it's, I think, a, a good thing to clear up because I think that there are some assumptions in the industry that uh, those distributors that have multi-year contracts and are specifically in the program space are the ones that generally get the most money for their businesses where more transaction-oriented, non-contract based, uh, when I say non-contract, I mean on the end client side, base distributors are getting less. And I think what you're saying is that's not necessarily the case because there are buyers in each of these particular areas. Am, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Got it. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm always curious to ask about the red flags. Um, like what are some, maybe two or three examples of red flags that you see from a mile away when it comes to doing uh, evaluation for a distributor? Um, that suggests to you that this company is not worth what the or what the owner thinks it is, or just where you feel that this is a business that will just never sell because of these particular factors. Um, no, that one's that one's fairly easy. <laughs> the biggest the biggest red flag is when they don't even have um, a solid set of financial statements to give to us, and that happens more often than you'd think. Um, so that's a pretty big red flag. I mean, if you can't support what your numbers are, but with some, you know, solid, and, and it also it's a it's an indication that internally that the policies aren't in place, and uh, that's just not something people are really looking to buy. Um, but further to that, and a little more sophisticated, would be um, there's a there's a lot of woman-owned businesses in this industry, and. That's a great thing, but when your sales are contingent upon having that woman-owned status, it's difficult to sell that company without some sort of discount because they don't know that they're going to be able to retain some of those contracts or customers. Right, because it's being purchased by um, a non-woman-owned business. Right, and even right. if it's not being purchased by a non, and there is a woman that owns the other business, that status is not transferable. So that other company has to have that status or they have to reapply for it. Right. And, uh, and that's not necessarily a slam dunk. No, not at right. all. Okay. That's a great, great point. That's a, that's one of the big ones, honestly. Um, and it doesn't always, and then that doesn't mean we can't sell women owned companies because we do it all the time, but it's just a matter of, you know, as you, if you were, if you have that status, um, just keeping your finger on the pulse of how important that status is to your customers and kind of documenting that along the way so that when you go to sell your company, you can say, well, yes, I have the status. It's helped me get these customers, but it's not necessarily necessary for me to retain it in order for me to sell the company and those sales continue. Right, right. Um, I know you're continuing on the red flags, but I just want to jump in on that specific point. Um, would the same thing apply to distributors that have license uh, licenses with, let's say, sports teams or colleges and universities? Um, do you find that there's that uh, a problem there if that particular distributor sells to another distributorship that license would be null and void, or is it a little bit different? Are those easy uh, more easily transferred? I think it. I mean, it, honestly, it depends on the license. Uh, some of them are transferable and some of them are, um, are not. I know that college licenses are difficult because 
say you have a you know a company in Ohio that has you know Ohio State or something like that, and somebody that's not in Ohio buys them, they, those they don't like those licenses to transfer to out of state companies. They like those close to home. So that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, that can definitely happen. Understand, right? Okay. Um, sorry, you were continuing with uh, another red flag or two, <laughs> and I cut you off. Sure. No. No, that's okay. Um, red flag. Well, the compensation issue is the other one that we already spoke about. If you're overcompensating your salespeople, and they're really kind of running the show, and that can be a big red flag, um, just because they have a lot of leverage, and if they catch wind that the company is for sale, they'll use that leverage. And we've seen that happen before. So I, I would say those are the major red flags. Um, most most obstacles we can overcome when we're selling a company. Um, I guess I guess the only final one would be a huge concentration. There are a lot of distributors that started based around one company, one customer. Like they, maybe they came from that customer and they started their own company and they were ser- you know serving that bigger customer. So I've seen companies that have 80% of their sales with one customer. That can be a red flag. I I mean, we can still sell that company, but the structure is going to be a lot different. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, So I want to turn or flip the coin, so to speak, and talk about how you help companies buy businesses. Sure. So we don't start with evaluation, obviously. Um, The process really starts with gaining an understanding of parameters uh, which include size, location, product type for suppliers. Um, for distributors, we often um, we look at that independent contractor versus employee model a lot. And um, one of the other big factors for distributors is decoration versus no decoration. Um, some distributors do some of that, you know, embroidery and screen printing, that sort of thing. And some of them really want that, and some of them don't. Um, the programs and the non- I mean, you definitely have program companies out there that's their bread and butter. And then you have people that don't want anything to do with them because there's some costs associated with that. Um, so it's really, we really just gain an understanding of those parameters and what's going to make sense. Um, and obviously for suppliers, those parameters usually revolve around product type, what's going to fit market marketing wise and what's going to fit from a production standpoint and space. Right. right. Um, so once we identify a target, so we, we, we develop a target list and we go out and we contact people on their behalf. And um, once a target is identified that is interested in discussing discussing the process, um, it just becomes similar to the sell side in terms of negotiating and reviewing purchase documents. Uh, the analysis is obviously fairly different because we're looking at it from a buy side versus a sell side, but uh, we have a lot of experience on that. And um, I, I mean, Jeff and John have been doing this for a long time, uh, my two partners, and they have a lot of experience with the um, buying, moving, integrating. So this is, I mean, it's just, it's a a very complicated thing to buy, especially on the supplier side. Right. But it's something that um, they have a lot of experience with. So right. that's, um, I mean, obviously we coordinate closing and all that. And we're usually writing the purchase documents versus just reviewing because the seller is normally the one that submits like a, a LOI and a letter of intent or an asset purchase agreement. So, right. Right. Um, when is the right time for either a distributor or a supplier to consider an acquisition? Um, there really, I mean, there's no, I guess, right time per se, but 
um, you definitely want to have um, your infrastructure in place. You know, I mean, you should have policies and procedures, manuals. There shouldn't be any question as to, you know, your company, what it stands for, what your mission is and all of that. You don't really want to start building on top of a foundation that isn't already solid. Right. So, I mean, there's really no right or wrong time I mean, in this in the stage of a company, as long as you've built that strong foundation and you have financing in place and and all of that, right, and that the the acquired company can come in and hopefully be seamlessly integrated from an infrastructure and systems perspective, and then hopefully from a culture perspective as well. And you you think that's a given, but Correct. I'm sure that's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, the culture <laughs> it would be a whole other a whole other podcast. Yeah, um, I, I'm. I'm really interested in the diversity of backgrounds in the industry from an ownership perspective. So, not only do we have big companies and, and small companies, but we've got privately owned family businesses, and then we're seeing a lot of private equity uh, controlled businesses as well. And you see this on the distributor side with bigger companies like AIA and Halo, and then of course you see it on the supplier side. Um, probably most recently with Polyconcept, uh, they've been through that a, a, a few times. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm interested to see where you see most of the action on the privately owned side or on the private equity or investor controlled side from an acquisition standpoint. Um, from an acquisition standpoint, just because of the sheer numbers, there are more smaller transactions probably than there are those larger privately um, private equity type of transactions. You just hear about the larger ones because they're large. Yep. Um, but there are a lot of smaller transactions going on all the time as well. Right. So, I, I mean, obviously the new continue into the future and there's a lot of action in both of those arenas, but um, I, I, I see it as fairly, I mean, from a, from a number standpoint, there are more smaller transactions than the larger ones. Right. Got it. Um, what kind of market are we in right now in the promotional products industry, a buyer's or a seller's market? So it's really interesting. Um, I've been asked that question a lot um, I've, ever since, even since I started. And um, I usually answer this question by kind of showing a contrast between the housing market and the market for companies, just because that's what people understand. Okay. Um, so buying a company is unlike buying a house because you never really need to purchase a company. Right. Um, strategic buyers are not going to overpay for something just because or buy something that they don't necessarily want just because there isn't much on the market. So it's never really that, that makes it never really a seller's market per se. Right. Um, but on the other side, there are always active buyers looking to purchase and the industry is traditionally a very active M&A industry. Um, so it's never really a buyer's market either. There's always some competition out there. Um, with the exception of maybe a recession um, where there's not as many access to funds and people are being more conservative with their funds, we usually see a lot of activity because this industry is just full of entrepreneurs and visionaries and people that want to keep moving forward. So Right. Would you feel that there's an exception to be made if 
the distributor or supplier in question is in a very unique space. They, they may have a very unique business model. An example could be um, uh, someone in the online space that is has created something that um, uh, that an acquirer just has to have because it's strategic, it's new, it's innovative, and it's different than the traditional distributor who has maybe $2 million worth of sales and they just have a bunch of clients and it's just numbers. But their business model is not particularly unique because it's just it's just numbers. It's just clients at that point. Right. Well, the online space definitely does carry higher multiples. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. One is the lack of um, that intermediary, that that uh, salesperson in there. Um, there's still costs associated with SEO, but you don't have that relationship there that you have to then continue preserving in the future. So it's a less risky purchase um, from a, as long as you understand SEO and how to carry it forward. Right. So, yes, I mean, definitely there are some niche companies out there that they can drive up higher prices and, and even have some premiums and that sort of thing. Um, that can definitely happen. Uh, we just don't, we generally don't value companies based on that ideal buyer coming along and it being like the perfect fit and they have to have it because it doesn't happen as often as you might think. So right, right. We, we try to be more conservative. And then if that, if that buyer does come along, then obviously they seize that opportunity. Right. I, I understand. Um, so following up on that, are you able to share examples of the kinds of multiples that you're seeing distributors get for their businesses today? And, um, and then if you could unpack where that multiple comes from, is it a multiple based on sales, multiple based on margin, multiple based on EBITDA? Like where, where does that come from? We don't necessarily put, I mean, because there are so many different types of multiples, people don't, we don't usually share them because they, they either cling to one side or the other side. And it almost feels irresponsible to throw like ranges of multiples out there, especially if they're multiples on different things, because there's multiples on EBITDA, there's multiples on gross margin, there's multiples on, um, there's, I mean, there's no multiple on sales. I can tell you that much. Um, people ask that all the time. Well, is my company worth one time sales? Well, not, no. Um, but I can share that, that you don't ever value a company based on sales, but, um, I can share kind of some of those things that drive value. Um, obviously, profitability is the number one thing. Um, we wrote a, a series of articles not too long ago that I basically said just that, that um, when a buyer buys your company, they're, they're looking to add on to their own to, to make money. Or they're, maybe they're not adding on. Maybe it's a sole purchaser. But at the end of the day, they're looking to leverage what they have already to make money. So, I mean, profitability is king in, in that respect. Um, now, if they're looking to relocate it, then then they're looking at maybe just your gross margin part, portion of it, and they're going to use their own operating infrastructure. Um, but the um, main factors on the distributor side are, you know, your customer makeup, who your customers are, what your concentrations are, what industries you're you're in, that sort of thing. Um, the compensation model for salespeople is huge. Um, the uh, gross margin percentage is big. Um, the industry average is 35% on the distributor side. It can vary from year to year, but it usually averages right around there. So, um, and, and then, yeah, it, it all boils down to profitability and quality of earnings for, um, for the distributor side of things. 
Right. And then when you look at the buyer side, uh, what is there a general rule of thumb that you find with buyers when it comes to them paying off the um, uh, paying off the, the the cost of the acquisition? Is it you know a three year uh, um, payout that you usually see? Because I think these are the sorts of things that then influence how much the buyer is prepared to pay. Right. Um, so we. We see buyers, they usually set their own parameters in that area. A lot of people say three years. Um, some people say four or five. Um, on the distributor side, though, it's fairly unique because you have a deal that's usually cash flowing itself just because there always is, well, not always, but most of the time there's that element of contingency that's based on future performance. So, you know, you pay a certain amount down or as a, like a, you know, incentive, and then there's a, um, there can be a contingency portion that is based on a number of different factors. Right. Uh, I'm one thing that we're seeing. This is maybe a bigger picture, thirty thousand foot view kind of question. Um, are, are do you think that we're going to see more acquisitions on the supplier and distributor side over the next three to five years, or do you feel that things are starting to level out? So I, right, it's interesting because right now I'm working with more suppliers and um, 10 years ago when I joined Certified Marketing, we were doing more of an 80-20 ratio in favor of the distributors. Right. That, that made a lot of sense based on the the makeup of the industry being more distributors than suppliers. Right. Um, but now we're doing more and more supplier transactions and I kind of expect that to continue. Um I think that it's an indication that running a profitable small supplier and competing with the bigger suppliers is becoming increasingly difficult. Yep. Um, it's difficult to get that critical mass that you need in order to cover your overhead and still make money. Right. Um, and then also with all the uh, preferred supplier lists and buying groups, the, the little suppliers can sometimes fall through the cracks. Right. So um, it's actually, I, I kind of thought about it and, and I thought this is the opposite of what's going on in, in like the food industry where you're buying local and you're buying from like smaller vendors. We're kind of going the other way in our industry. Yeah. And I, I always wonder whether that's a good or a bad thing for the industry. I mean, I think on the good side, uh, there's nothing wrong with better uh, economies of scale that, that reduces prices. Uh, it increases efficiency. Customer service goes up. Uh, customers get their products on time. And uh, if you're a distributor, presumably you're able to get a bigger rebate if you have uh, greater purchasing power with that particular supplier. Um, I think obviously on the bad side is that you we don't want to have, well, at least maybe this is my opinion. I don't think that we want to have an industry where there's five suppliers and that's it, right. <laughs> um, which is a little bit like the ad agency world. When you think of the big, when you think of WPP and the, the, the huge um, multinational conglomerates that have come in and bought a ton of different ad agencies, whether they're creative or PR. And um, I, I don't know whether that's good or bad. It's just, it's interesting that, that that's what's happening there. Whereas I think our industry, uh, love it or hate it, has always had this huge amount of diversity mm -hmm. and we have resisted this idea of consolidation. I mean, I was speaking with David Nicholson uh, with Poly Concept a couple weeks ago 
And we all think of Polyconcept as this monstrous company, uh, monstrous in a good way, not not in a bad way, but just mm-hmm. just big in terms of size. And when you look at their market share, they're you know a, a single digits <laughs> within the industry. It's amazing, right? So um, I, I think that where my my point is um, is I, as as much as I think we'll see more. Um, well, maybe I'll ask you this as opposed to being my opinion because you, you you might contest it. But my suspicion is that we'll probably start – we'll still see the polyconcepts of the world continue to acquire. They've got private equity money and I think that that's a great way to grow. That's good for your business, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with that, you'll then ultimately have a whole host of newer – um, arguably more innovative suppliers that are coming in and finding a foothold in the market because they're bringing innovation to the market. I think mm-hmm. that the suppliers who are struggling, as, as you say, are the usually the me-toos, uh, the, the, the people who can't get into a preferred distributor list because they don't they don't have anything that differentiates them from the big guys. So why would a distributor divert spend to, to a me too? So I I think that there is an opportunity for the innovative suppliers to come in with new, interesting product, but that's harder to do. Right. Definitely. Um, I, I was going to say that too. I don't, I don't see us having five big suppliers because this is traditionally and probably will keep, being a, an industry of ingenuity and people, you know, starting companies from the ground up and growing them. And, you know, if they sell them when they get to three, four or five million dollars in revenue, that's not a terrible thing as long as their their brand and their quality isn't sacrificed and the yep. customer service. Yep. No, I, 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 I agree. Um, well, on that note, I think that I, I would I'd like to finish it off by first of all thanking you for spending the time here Jamie but if if I'm um, if, if if I'm a business owner I think to sum this up if I'm a business business owner of a supplier or a distributor what are two or three things that I should do today if I'm at all curious about selling my company at some point in the future what are two, two or three things that you'd leave us off with um, I think that the biggest thing is to well, there's there's yeah yeah there's a few. The thing, the biggest thing is to understand your value and what's driving your value. Yeah. Um, if you want to sell your company and you want to get to a certain point, you need to know where you're at now. Um, so if you have any interest in selling your company, even if it's ten years from now, you would have ten years to work on building that value and building up those key things that make your company more attractive to buyers. Um, I think everybody needs an exit strategy. And they need to understand the timing of doing a deal. Um, many buyers are looking for a two to three, sometimes even four year transition to help um, get the clients over. And that sounds like a really long time, but that's the best bet uh, for you if you're selling your company is to stay with the company while you have some sort of earnout or contingency in place. Otherwise, you're leaving it all into the, in the hands of the buyer and, and you accept more risk that way. So definitely consider your exit strategy and your timing. Um, and I, I would just continue to work on having solid policies and procedures in place, um, making sure that you're on par with the industry, 
in terms of compensating your employees and compensating your salespeople, especially. Um, from a distributor standpoint, it's just the it's the hardest thing to do. Um, I think is to take a, a hard look at your compensation plan like that and and make tough decisions. But in the long run, it's going to be worth it. And and Jamie, for for people that are curious to learn more about you and your firm, uh, as well as all the resources that you make available to people who are trying to figure out buying and selling, are you able to share where people might be able to uh, contact you to learn more? Sure. Yep. We have a website. It's um, certifiedmarketing.com and a Facebook page as well. And we're actually going to be speaking out at the expo. So if you look at the speaker list, you'll see uh, myself or John Schimler on that speaker list too. And I think John is actually speaking on this topic. Fantastic. Well, uh, we'll make sure that we put this in the show notes as well for people. So this has uh, uh, been been a, a really interesting uh, time with you, Jamie. Uh, thank you so much for getting into all the details and driving at the specific examples. I think it's been really, really helpful. And uh, I know the members of the community will be really appreciative. Well, it was enjoyable for me too. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.